Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Steve Carter, and it was recorded on Sunday, June 5th. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, we'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at info at faithbridge.org. And if you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. Or you can even send us an email to learn about our ways to connect here with the life-changing community here at FaithBridge during the week as well. And you can always join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Steve. Well, good morning, FaithBridge. How's everyone doing? Some of you are like, who is this guy? Man, why is he wearing a scarf? Do you not know he's in Hugh Midston, Houston? This, y'all, y'all, this is, this is heat. This is hot. This is, I'm, I'm not used to this. I, I live out in Phoenix. Um, it's hot, but we always say it's a dry heat because it evaporates off of us. Um, here it just stays on. And just stays on. Y'all are strong people. Uh, I love, I love Faith Bridge. I love this church. It's an oh, just amazing opportunity I have every once in a while to come and teach here on the regular. And um, you might remember a few months ago I was teaching here and uh, I did this thing with name tags. And there was a high school student up there in the balcony and, and they said, you say the word literally too much. So I've been working on that. So um, I'm working on that. I did that teaching recently at some other place and, and someone stood up and said, you look like a poor man's Russell Crowe. And I was like, gladiator? He's like, no, no, not at all. Like that, the old Russell Crowe. And I was like, you watch your mouth, sinner. Um, well, hey, here's what I want to do. We're in this Luke series, all walking through the life of Jesus. And, and my whole hope, if, if you have heard any of my messages, is... Uh, to help you understand the Bible. I, I love this book so much. I, I believe that our life would be so much better if we could learn how to live under the authority of it. That when we read it, it can inspire us. It, it's not just this fight over, is this the inspired work of God? It's just so beautiful and powerful how when you open this book, how it can continue to inspire us in the here and now. This book is alive, it's active. And so what I want to do is I want to walk us through Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, um, raise your hand. We have this amazing team who would love to put a Bible in your hand. Um, but we're going to be starting in the Old Testament. And like I often do, I bring a little bit of Hebrew and some sports and, and, and a whole bunch of Jesus. So that's what we're going to try and do today. I want to I first teach you some context because when you understand the context then you can actually begin to discover what Jesus was doing or why this verse was so meaningful to the first century. So to do that, let's begin in a book that I know that all of you are in this morning. The book of Numbers. Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We'll start in Numbers 15. As I'm opening there, um, Numbers 13 and 14, you might remember, is where Moses, who was the leader at the time, basically told and chose 12 spies, one from each tribe, and sent them out. Because they had been hearing about this land that God had promised to them, a land that was overflowing with milk and honey. And Moses wanted to know before they went there, is it so? So they send out these 12 spies. Ten of them come back and they're like, it is. It's amazing. But we are like the size of grasshoppers to these giants. There's no way that we can take it. Two of them 
Joshua, which in Hebrew is the name Yeshua, which is where we get the name Jesus. Joshua and Caleb, those two stand up and are like, no, no, no. It is everything God promised and our God is who he promised and we will take that land. And then the whole nation was like, uh, we're going to stone those two. Um, we got a problem. And what was amazing, though, is in the next chapter, I think Moses goes to God and just says, man, I'm having a hard time because people are forgetting, forgetting. And just like Ken asks a great question, what story are you telling yourself? What story are you telling yourself? This nation just had forgotten about the commandments. And, and I, I can resonate. I really can resonate. Because if I'm really, really honest, I'm really, really good at forgetting the things I ought to remember and remembering the things I ought to forget. And, and that sometimes can control my life. And what I love about the Hebrew culture, and Jesus was not Swedish. Uh, he, he was Jewish. What I love about the Jewish culture is, is they actually believe in a God of props. And, and they actually wanted to make it so helpful for you to walk in step and in tune and in harmony with God. And this is what Moses and God come up with in the next chapter after watching these spies and the whole nation forget about God's promises. Look what it says in Numbers chapter 15, verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with the blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to lick at. And so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. So make these tassels, have some corners, put them on the garments. And this is where they created what we know as a prayer shawl. Now this is, this is a Jewish prayer shawl. Um, and what's amazing about these prayer shawls is that Jewish boys and, and, and girls would, would get these. Right before their bar mitzvah, bet mitzvah. And they, they would basically wear these in the morning. And on the corners, you will see these long tassels. Now, what's amazing about Hebrew is they, again... Everything is so symbolic. So every Hebrew letter in the alphabet, they only have 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. In their 22 letters, each Hebrew letter has a numeric number associated to it. So what's amazing is certain words might be like the word Yahweh, but Yahweh has a number to it. And that, that number can lead you into a whole kind of place of study or what they call midrash. And what's amazing is the word that you see in Hebrew for tassels is the word tzitzit. Let me hear you say tzitzit. Well done, well done. Now, what's amazing about tzitzit are, are these tassels. And what you'll see is that there are these five knots on the tassels. The five knots literally represent the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what's amazing is in between those five knots are four spaces. The four spaces represent the four letters that make up the holiest name. Yod, He, Vav, He, that is the name Yahweh. On the tassels, there's eight strings. Eight plus five equals 13. The letters that make up the word seed seat add up to 600. So 600 plus 13 equals 613. Curious, any of you know how many commandments or laws that are in the Torah, first five books of the Bible? 
613, you're right. 365 of those commands, those mitzvot, that literally means sacred deeds. 365, one for every day, is literally thou shall not. 248 are thou shall. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. And every single day, a Jewish boy or Jewish girl in the morning would put on their prayer shawl and they would wrap these tassels, seed seat, around them. And the whole idea was that they would reflect and in moments where all of a sudden temptation or struggle would come, they would be able to almost like numerically, in a way, just begin to pray through the commands or pray through a blessing or pray through and have a moment to literally just remember so that they could walk in obedience. Now, what's crazy too is the word for corners, which there are four corners on a prayer shawl, is the word kanaf. Kanaf. And, and what I love about this is just this idea that whenever you would kind of pray, you would literally kind of have a moment where you could enter into what they would call your prayer closet. And you know what a prayer closet was? It was literally when you went like this. And it was this sense of being wrapped in the divine love of God, blocking out all of what is around, but having the corners wrap you and just be grounded in what was true. But there was this beautiful profound prophecy that was found in the Old Testament. And Jewish boys and Jewish girls would have known this. But it was this prophecy that had to do with a prayer shawl. Look what it says in Malachi chapter four, verse two. But for you who fear my name, the Son, capital S, of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go free. Leaping with joy like calves let out to the pasture. Now here's the idea. Is that the word corners, kanaf, actually was translated also to be wings. Because if you actually ever saw a prayer shawl and someone walking with their arms spread out, look at it, what it looks like. This sense of wings. And so... Many Jewish boys and Jewish girls understood that someday there would be a Messiah who would be the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his kanaf, in the corner, in the tassels of his prayer shawl. So you've got to understand something. If Jesus lived 33 years in between a 100-year span, there were a dozen people who said that they were somebody, that they were the, the next son of God, that they were the Messiah, they were the anointed one who was going to liberate the people out of occupation and into the promise. But they died, and they weren't anybody. They weren't anybody. They weren't who they said and pretended to be. But if you get to Luke chapter 8, you're going to meet a woman a woman who has such shame, such pain, such desperation, who's living in, a, in a, a time of profound, just where she is isolated and pushed out, but she understands this prophecy. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third gospel. It says this in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned... A crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. 
See, back in those days, the people wanted to hear a rabbi. There was no, like, NBA. There was no NFL uh, the, the people that, that, that the crowds wanted to hear were the thought leaders. And the thought leaders of that day were the rabbis, the teachers. Especially as I taught a few months back, rabbis with shmiha, a rabbi with authority. And so what's amazing is the crowds are getting wind. Oh, 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 that rabbi from Nazareth is coming. Jesus is coming. And so the crowds begin to welcome them because he might offer a word of truth for the day. Then it says this, verse 41, Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Clay Scroggins, a dear friend, a couple weeks ago preached on this. This message is not about Jairus. It's not about a 12-year-old girl. This message is about the story of a woman that comes right after this meeting with Jairus. As Jesus was on his way to go meet with this girl who's 12, the crowds almost crushed him. They, they were so captivated by his words, so moved by his teaching. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. This story is mentioned in three of the four Gospels. There's other uh, accounts where basically it says that she spent all of her money going to doctors. So she's broke. Nowhere else to turn. She's gone everywhere looking to be healed. Look what it says. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. This is written, kind of translated from Greek. But if it was brought back to Hebrew, what it would say is that she walked up and she touched the kanaf, the corner. And look what Jesus' response is. Verse 45. Who touched me? Who touched me, Jesus asked, when they all denied it. It's like he's like looking around. Did you touch me? Did you touch me? Hey, did you touch me? Did you touch me? Who touched me? Did some, somebody touch Who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, and look at Peter's trying to be the reasonable one. He's just so great and so human. Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. We've all touched you. We're, I don't understand. What are you asking? And look what he says, what Jesus said. Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Powerful line. Someone touched me. I know because power has left my body and went somewhere else. I know. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I love this story so much. I love this story because Jesus is just walking around. He's trying to get somewhere because he's got places to go. He's got people to heal. And all of a sudden, there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And in the Hebrew culture, they were so conscientious of disease and sickness and how things could spread. It's like when you're on an airplane now and someone coughs and you're like, you don't have the vid, do you? <laughs> Cover your mouth, man. I don't want it. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like, he's walking, and this woman, this woman who's been bleeding, if she was around people, you know what she'd have to yell? Unclean! I'm unclean! And everyone would be like, oh, 
I don't know what she has, but let's not get near her. Unclean! She couldn't enter into the synagogue. She didn't have the luxury of being able to come into a service and to receive God's word. She would be on the outside, unable to experience the closeness of God. And she's gone everywhere. She searched. She went to doctors. She paid her copay. Still paying her copay. Insurance companies, man, don't even get me started. That's a whole other sermon. I'll tell you what, this poor woman, this poor woman, but she has an idea. She's got an idea. And here's her idea. Oh man, there's going to be crowds. Maybe, maybe, just maybe. I can kind of blend in and nobody will know it's me. So I imagine she puts her kind of prayer shawl tunic around and kind of covers up so much so that nobody can see. They can see her eyes, but they probably can't see that it's her. And then she goes, man, I, I know who I believe this man to be. I know that verse from Malachi that says the son of righteousness has healing in his wings. And I know if I can somehow, I don't need to speak a word to him. Because I know if he is who I think he is and who I believe him to be, I just have to touch it. And I'll be healed. And so this woman ends up with a whole crowd and I think she's just watching and she's sneaking and she's trying to get closer and closer. I don't know if you ever had this experience. A number of years ago when I was in college, I really, really, really wanted to go see one of my favorite bands. They were playing in LA. I waited in a Ticketmaster line. Remember those days before apps? That's how old I am. And I got up next and I, the tickets were gone. And I was so frustrated. And I was like, I don't get to see my favorite band. Drive back to school. A buddy of mine, like a couple days later, goes, you're not going to believe this, man. I got eight tickets. I'm like, eight tickets? Yeah, but the problem is it's not in L.A. And I'm like, it's okay. Where is it? Las Vegas. I'm like, okay. He's like, we're going to have to drive seven hours there, but we can go. And I'm like, you only needed two. Why'd you get eight? I'm like, he's like, we'll just take as many people we can. So we caravan from Orange County to Las Vegas. On the way there, massive accident. My friends get stopped. It's crazy. We keep going because we're on a mission to see the show. But because of this accident, we're held up. We miss the opening act. And they're basically, when we walk through this auditorium that seat tens of thousands, we're at the very back. And I, and I remember, remember going, that's not where the action is in the very back. Action is right up front. I want to get right up front. How do I get right up front? And my buddy, Kip, real name, Kip goes, we can do it. I'm like, how? He's like, we just got to crawl. I'm like, what? And so for the next 20 minutes, while they're wrapping up and clearing the stage between the opening set and my favorite band, I crawled my way to the front of the stage. And people are like, Someone just touched my foot. I'm like, sorry, just trying to get to the front. Excuse me, excuse me. Just, just imagine you're standing on a concert and some random dude is just crawling like a little baby. But I had to be close. I had to be close. And this is what this woman is. If I could just get so close, she's got to press through, push through all of these people. And she grabs hold of it. 
And then she lets go. And right away she knows I've been healed. It's like stopped. And now she's like, I can just exit stage left and go back to life and proclaim no longer that I'm unclean, unclean, unclean. I can just be me. And as she's beginning to walk away, Jesus goes, who touched me? And she's like, oh, no, now I'm in trouble. The rabbi is going to get me. And I'm going to be in so much trouble because I am unclean and I touched a clean rabbi. And she watches this rabbi looking at people. Did you? Did you? Did you? Did you? Who? Who? She, walks, she watches the, 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 the kind of overzealous disciple try to make it super simple. Oh, there's so many people around you. That, you probably touched everybody. Don't worry about it. And then he says, power came out of me. And I imagine Jesus just looking right at her. And I imagine her knees just beginning to quiver and she goes, I, I know. And the scripture says she walks and she falls down at her feet, at his feet, and begins to explain what had happened. And I, I, I just find myself moved by that. Like what caused a person to live with that level of dependency? Because right now we live in a time where we can sing songs and we can often speak words and phrases that we could talk about it without actually being about it. And here's a woman who goes, I didn't say a word. I just, by my actions, demonstrated where my hope is. By my actions, demonstrated where my faith is. And you've heard this word, hope, be referenced multiple times in the service. And I'll be honest with you, I think it is a lost word in our day. In our day. That woman had it. I want to have that level of hope. That level of faith. And hope is like the vision that you see. The faith is the steps to get to that vision. This woman had it. And you got to understand, hope in the days of Jesus, it was a weak word. It was a soft word. Actually, in Rome, they taught that you shall never have hope. Hope is for the weak. Hope is meaningless. Reason and reality is all you have. They would actually teach third graders, fourth graders in grammar school to literally write out all of the worst things that could happen to you. And to teach these kids, all you can do is conquer the fear and the emotions because reason, reality, that's your God. Reason, reality, that's all you got. And truth be told, I think there's a lot of us who have been shaped in the way of Rome. Because when it comes to a relationship, some of us have no hope. When it comes to our finances, some of us have no hope. When it comes to our future, some of us have no hope. When it comes to our physical bodies and getting healthy, some of us have no hope. Some of us have no hope in our marriage because we have been shaped and patterned after the way of Rome. But some of us, some of us, some of us, some of us, some of us have more of a cultural whimsy when it comes to hope. And we say the word hope, and it feels nice when we say it, but it's really, if you get, if you get really, really fixated on the synonym of what we mean when we say the word hope, it's fascinating. Because we say sentences like this, 
I hope the Dallas Cowboys win a playoff game. I hope. I hope that there's no traffic from here to IAH so that I can make my flight on time. I hope that the family will all gather together on 4th of July weekend so that we can be together. I'm saying the word hope, but what am I really preaching? Uncertainty. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if the Dallas Cowboys are going to win a playoff game. From what I've seen, I don't think it's possible. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be no traffic from here to IAH. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if the whole family is actually going to make it a priority. I don't know. So there's some of us who live preaching the way of Rome. No hope, no hope, no hope. Some of us are absolutely using the word hope, and it sounds nice, but we're preaching uncertainty. But biblical hope is wildly different. Biblical hope, I think, is what we need to reclaim and redeem. Biblical hope is what I see that this woman had even if she doesn't know the full concept, but she had a hope based on that Malachi passage, on that prophecy that she was willing to put into action. So let me tell you, just let me tell you what biblical hope is. Number one is you desire something good. Take a situation in your life right here, right now, where you're going the way of Rome or going the way of cultural whimsy, Go in the way of no hope or uncertainty and just desire. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your body. Maybe it's your walk with God. Maybe it's just what's happening in our world right now and try to desire something good and not just good. Desire heaven to invade that. Okay? You desire, if Christ were at the center of this marriage, Christ were at the center of this addiction, Christ were at the center of this relationship, Christ were at the center of the body, Christ were at the center of finances, Christ were at the center of our world, desire that. So all of a sudden it's perspective shifting. Number two, number two, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. If the tomb is empty, anything is possible. I love what Andy Stanley says. He says, hey, if there's a guy who predicts that he's going to die and tells you that in three days he's going to rise again and pulls it off, you should just go with that guy. <laughs> right? I'm telling you, there were leaders, like I already mentioned, who said they were somebody who were nobody and they died. And their movements came to nothing. But if the tomb is really empty then you have to believe anything is possible. What's harder to save, a marriage or raise a dude from the dead? What's harder to save, to heal someone from an addiction or raise a guy from the dead? And all of a sudden, when you start to desire Christ at the center, but then you actually have this belief, oh, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Number three, because the resurrection brings certainty. And confidence. See, Rome, no hope. It's weak. It's meaningless. Cultural whimsy, uncertainty. That's what's preached. Just hope, just hope, hope for the best. Just, no, no, no. When it comes to the idea of why we gather, I know there are 52 weekends in a year, but 51 of those weekends we refer to as a mini Easter to remember the event. It's not the death that saved us. It's the death, burial, and resurrection that saved us. 
It is the reality that we are Easter people who live in a Good Friday world. It's the reality that the event of Easter is what rocked those high schoolers and the gift of the Holy Spirit that unleashed them into the world. And friends, I think if you have no sense or belief in the resurrection, then I guarantee you, you will live like Rome or you will live like cultural whimsy and you will stay seated and not actually risk it all to grab hold of Christ. And for many of us, we'll just give up. We'll give up on a marriage, give up on a relationship, give up on this, give up on that, give up, because everything's got to serve me and you'll just give up. Or you'll be like, I just hope that it just gets better. I hope that it gets better, but it's all on other people, all on other situations. But man, when you got biblical hope, you have this ability to actually desire Christ at the center and you know and believe with confidence and certainty the tomb is empty, anything is possible, so that, number four, you can expect good to happen. And it doesn't mean it will always happen on your timetable, which is hard. But this is, this is why Paul, Paul revolutionized the word hope, reclaimed it, redeemed it, restored it. And Romans, you remember this, where he's like, hey, y'all are going to experience suffering following Jesus. And then, because this is what Rome taught, you're going to experience suffering. And then, you know what he says? And suffering is going to produce perseverance. And they're like, exactly, that's right. That's what we learned in grammar school. And suffering is going to produce perseverance. And perseverance is going to produce character. Yeah, that's exactly what our teacher taught us. You're right. And then he goes, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope will not be put to shame. And that's where he lost Rome. And they're like, what? And he goes, we are people of hope. We are hope dealers. We are constantly looking to distribute hope. Not uncertain hope, but the belief that a God who began a good work will not stop. Not stop until the fullness of this goodness can be actualized in the here and now. And I think that's what that woman understood. Obviously, the resurrection hadn't happened, but for her, it was the prophecy. But I think we, we today get to be people who know the Old Testament's filled with hundreds and hundreds of, of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And we get to be someone who knows that Easter happened, that resurrection is possible, that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is within each and every one of us. So we don't need to be people of Rome and we don't need to be people of uncertainty. We can be people of certainty. So what does this all mean today? Here's what I think. Here's what I think. I think that there's some of you, some of you that are here that... If you're really, really honest, you've lost hope. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in the direction of this country or this world. Maybe it's in your faith. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's with anxiety. Maybe it's with something emotional or mental. Or maybe it's just with your body. You're like, I just, whether it's some image or I can't get healthy, I just, I just, it's just how it always will be. It's how it always will be. And maybe for some of you, it's just, 
The uncertainty has paralyzed you. Uncertainty of what tomorrow will bring. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Jesus, tomorrow's got enough problems on its own. What you control is right here and right now. And that's where he tells us in that passage on worry, and all worry is, is a misuse of the imagination. We misuse our imagination when we worry, and Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And I just, I just think that as a church, there are times where we just need to make space to pray. To make space where we can actually be honest and human with the areas where we have no hope or where we are profoundly uncertain. And I think this is a safe enough space. And so what I want to do is I want to invite our prayer partners. And they're going to come up front. And they're going to just stand here. Because in a moment, the band in this room and in the chapel is just going to make some space for a few moments. For you just to be honest and be human. And I, and I, I say this because I want you to know this. Nobody's in the back room going, oh, that person came forward. What's going on in their life? This is, this, is, this is not that. This is us actually saying, I need more of Christ. I need fresh just vision for hope. I, I need in a world of profound uncertainty, in a world that preaches no hope, I need to be reminded that God's not done with this. Even if I might be. I need that fresh vision. If you're a tactile learner like me, maybe for some of you, you don't want to talk to anybody. That's fine. Maybe you just want to come up and just imagine yourself pressing through the crowds to grab hold of the seat seat, the tassels. And in your own way, just having a moment just to say, renew my hope. Heal this. Give me fresh vision. Maybe, maybe you want to grab that and then go talk and get prayer. Or maybe you just want to grab that, have a moment, and literally then go back to your seat. But I guarantee you, if you ask yourself, is there a place in my life where I have no hope? Ask yourself what you're really saying. I don't think heaven wants to intervene and heal. I don't think heaven wants to actually rescue and redeem. I don't think that God sees me or sees this or understands. And that's why we just need moments to be family. So if that's you, I'm just going to invite you to do a brave thing. And what's so beautiful is when that woman came forward and Jesus looked at her, you know what he said? Daughter. Not sinner, didn't shame her, just literally daughter, 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 son, son, daughter. So God, we just pray that we could make the kind of space where healing and wholeness and hope can reign. Where we can actually be the kind of people who will crawl, climb over, walk towards your presence. May we be the kind of people who say, God, I need help. I need hope. I need you. So God, move in this space. Do what you do. Only you can do. 
And may some chains be broken. At the end of the day, God, I know what the gospel truly is. Good news. It's love over fear. It's trust over control. It's peace over anxiety. It's freedom over slavery and bondage. And that's where transformation has happens through you. So give us love. Give us trust. Give us peace. Give us freedom here and now. You may respond to them.